Turn with me. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. I knew this was the passage that the Lord would want me to teach from today. As I, we arrived in Israel, we left on the 14th, arrived on the 15th, and as we spent the first several days, me, Russ, my wife, and the other pastors, uh, as we rode through the, the country and we went to these different places, started in Caesarea, all around the Galilean area, I, I could see with my eyes what I had read about, and truly I felt, you know, when, uh, when, when the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon, she said, not the half has been told. That's the way I felt. And so Ezekiel 36 and 37 just came alive to me, and they, they already were things that I fully believed, already were things that I had read, seen, heard testimony of others. But uh, when we finally arrived at Jerusalem, and I have to say, I will never forget the feeling of driving up into Jerusalem from 1,400 feet below sea level up into Jerusalem. And when you see the city for the first time, it, it will, the hair stands up on end. You're truly looking at the city that God ordained, and you know it. You, the Spirit of God, you feel it. You sense it. If you're a believer, now I would, I would say that uh, uh, many non-believers wouldn't feel that. Oh, it's old city. Uh, you know, that, but and you know Christ. It's something about it. it it's amazing. But I knew that uh, this 36th chapter, matter of fact, um, uh, Sarah and I read this chapter. We went up on the seventh floor of an outcrop of the hotel and read it over the city, and then prayed over the city, this 36th chapter. And I want to read it to you, and then I want to go through some things that I believe the Lord uh, is showing and doing in our lifetime. Starting with verse 1, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, starting with verse 1, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel, and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said to you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and they swallowed you up on every side so that you became a possession of the rest of the nations and are therefore taken up by the lips of talkers and slanders by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the rivers, to the valleys, the desolate wastes and the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery for the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom. Today, that's where Jordan is. Uh, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury, because you have borne the shame of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath, that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed I am for you and will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon all the house of Israel, all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply you, man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times, and do better for you than at the beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you. My people Israel, they shall take possession of you. And you shall be their inheritance. No more shall you bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour men and bereave your nation of children. Therefore, you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation anymore, says the Lord. Nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations anymore, nor bear the reproach of the people anymore, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble anymore, says the Lord. 
Verse 16, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their ways was like the uncleanliness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land and for their idols which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which, is the, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, I do not do this for your sake. O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you want, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord. Says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will walk in my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. I will, call you, I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and, increase of your, and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight and your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord, let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I also will enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. They will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the, nations shall, then the nations which are left around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and will do it. Thus says the Lord of God, I also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock of Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with the flocks of men, then they shall know that I am the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we ask that your spirit would speak. I know that you have because your word alone is powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, your word alone, which has already happened, happening, and will happen more in the days to come. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes by your spirit, illuminate for us what it is that the spirit speaks to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen. When we, um, when we arrived in Israel, before we arrived, it was dark. Uh, well, it was almost dark. It's by the time we got in the bus, it was dark. And I had this sense, and you, you, you want to continue to talk to the Lord. Because like, I wasn't there, like I said, not vacation, not seminary, not mission. You know, I just, the Lord told me to go. I didn't want to spend the money. I hate international travel. I don't like my sleep pattern messed up. The Lord says, don't care, don't care, don't care, just go. I'll take care of the rest. You'll be blessed, but I want you to come back with a blessing. So just go, just go. Didn't really know what uh, all that meant, but I have to say is ride in the bus and it's dark and you just kind of feel yourself winding your way through the valleys because I don't know what I'm looking at. I just see lights up on the hills. And uh, well, well, the first thing that I saw that we could see while it's still light out was Arab villages with the mosque in the middle and the minarets right in the center of town. Uh, there's actually a lot of Arab villages in Israel and very many Muslim, fully Muslim villages. Uh, don't let the American media fool you that, uh, that, uh, that you know, 
if you're Muslim, you're not welcome in Israel. Quite, quite frankly, there's fully Muslim villages that are doing very, very well, moving up into middle, middle and middle upper class, doing quite well uh, because of the infrastructure that Israel has built out. But uh, as it got, that was the first thing, that was the first village I saw was not a Jewish village, but an Arab Muslim village. But then as it got dark, I knew we were winding our way through Galilee towards the Sea of Galilee, where our hotel, Kinar, uh, was actually on uh, what would be the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And, but it was interesting because uh, the last trip I took outside the country, I was in London on business trip uh, back in May 2012. And I, it was interesting. I didn't feel all that welcome in London in my spirit. But in Israel... As soon as we're there, I felt welcome. But not necessarily by all the people, because some of the people very much welcomed us. Some of them gave us, you know, just cold shoulder, uh, you know, you're Americans. That, you, you know, they don't have to say it. You can just sense it, right? Uh, and so you, you, some you're really welcomed by, some you're not, just like any other place. Some people really welcome you, some really don't. Some ignore you altogether. Some could care less you're there. Some you're just a tourist and you know, me going about your business. But I tell you where the welcome, I felt welcome to the Lord. That's what it was. It was because it's the sense in my spirit is that the Spirit of God is hovering over the nation, stirring something magnificent in the days in which we live. That is the sense that I, that I had. And I asked my wife if she had the same one, and she, and she did as well. And I would sur- surmise that Russ may feel the same, and others uh, that, that were there uh, felt that same way. But if you're taking notes this morning, I want to, uh, the title of our time this morning, God's Word, is A Land Transformed. A Land Transformed. And uh, we'll look at three things this morning, the land, the people, and the renewal. The land, the people, and the renewal. I'm not telling you by any stretch of the imagination I'm some expert in Israel because we went for 10 days. That's not, that's not the point. I only want to tell you what the Lord showed me and revealed in His Word and confirmed in his word. Things that I already believed, but the, the belief was already 100%, but now it's with greater conviction. It, uh, my preaching will change forever, I believe. I believe anything that I ever look in the scriptures will have changed, and if I go again, and I'd like to go again, uh, it would change even more. But uh, I truly fell in love with Israel. I fell in love with the nation. I fell in love with Jerusalem. You can't. It's our future home. Isn't that, is that the cool thought or not? When you're there, you actually know this is where I'll be living someday. That is an odd thought. You're walking around Jerusalem, and you know definitively that if you know Christ, you will be there. Even if you don't get to go in this lifetime. I hope you can. But I walk, and you know that this is where we're headed. Now, ultimately, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven, but I'm talking about for the millennium reign, Jesus will put his throne right there, and we see the very walls in which he'll come through. So it's just, you feel that sense of, Lord, this is, this is where you're, you're going to bring it all to pass here. I mean, we, we ended up at the at Tel Megiddo, which where you're looking across what is Har-Megeddon or Armageddon, uh, down from Mount Carmel, all those areas. You know that the Lord is bringing it all to pass in this place. But I want to talk to you a few minutes this morning about these three areas, the land, the people, and the renewal. And Israel, what we learned, uh, our, our guide, by the way, his name was Bruce, spent the first 22 years of his life in Boston where he grew up. The Lord blessed us by giving us a, a gentleman that is Jewish, but is from the United States, so lived 22 years, and he would use uh, funny little, you know, colloquialisms that we're familiar with. He would give, uh, you know, kind of uh, examples of things from things that we would understand in America, but yet he's lived the last 40 years in Israel. So he speaks fluent Hebrew. He's his, he would never come back to the United States. Loves it there. Jewish, not believer. Uh, he's read, uh, the New Testament, I think he'd read the first four books, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but that's it. He was Jewish, but yet uh, really, really neat guy. Uh, but uh, he was telling us that in Israel... When people leave Israel to go to another country, let's say they're going to go on vacation to the Greek Isles, which is quite popular for Israelis. Uh, they love Greece. Uh, or they want to come to the United States and go to Disney World or something like that. If they leave the country, they say they're leaving the land. 
They don't say we're leaving Israel. They say we're leaving the land because they believe it is the land given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. When they come back, they say we're going back to the land. And I want to talk a little bit about the land. Um, right here in the first uh, few verses of 36, notice that God starts with the land. Look at verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. Interesting. Not even the people of Israel. You, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. I didn't know mountains could hear. But God speaks to the land. The land will bring forth what he has purposed. Um, one of the things that was really a learning thing for us about Israel, how many of you have ever driven west from Richmond on I-64, past Charlottesville, and you've gone up through the Rockfish Gap, which is where Mount Afton is, and then you descend down into Waynesboro? Anyone ever done that? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Mount Afton is actually one of the windiest places in the United States, at the top of Mount Afton. Uh, consistently gets wind. What happens is the wind comes off the Atlantic Ocean, and it rolls at about 1,000, 1,500 feet unabated, well over the, the high buildings of Richmond. And where does it hit? Right at the top of Mount Afton. Ma Mount Afton sits about 2,400 feet above sea level. It's not some, you know, it's not Mount Everest or anything. But it's still tall relative to our landscape because we're, we're pretty close to sea level here uh, in Richmond. And as you're driving up through Charlottesville, the mountains are beautiful. They're Blue Ridge because the, the hue of the light makes them look blue or purplish on on the mountains, and they're beautiful, right? And then you start to climb up, your ear will pop, and you get to the top of 2,400 feet, and you're up there, and you're not even at the top of Mount Afton because the mountain's still above you, right? They've cut through the rock. Well, Jerusalem, which I didn't know, you've probably seen pictures of Jerusalem, and you see, oh, look how cute little Mount Olives is. It's a little nub. But what I didn't know, and what a lot of people, and I'll share this stuff on Wednesday, I'll give you pictures to really kind of make it clear. Jerusalem sits higher than Mount Afton, the city. It would be more akin to building Charlottesville on top of Mount Afton. Not through the pass, the top of Mount Afton, but you have to go up another 100, 150 feet. There's Jerusalem. Winds come off the Mediterranean, sweep across the coastline of India, and they come up into the mountains of Judea, the Judean mountain range. Jerusalem, this time of year, it's winter, uh, we came up from the Dead Sea where we were down at the Springs of Engedi, and I was wearing a backpack where my back was dripping wet with sweat because it was like 81 degrees. Uh, Israeli girls were playing in their full uniforms in the springs. We've come up the mountain into Jerusalem. That's where the, you know, the hair stands on end. We get to the top of the mountain. We go to Mount of Olives, which you know, your jaw is on the ground because you're actually looking where Jesus preached the Olivet Discourse at. He's looking at the East Gate directly down at Jerusalem. You're sitting at at the Mount of Olives, you're sitting closer to 2,600 feet, and you get off the bus, and it is freezing. And the wind hits you, and you realize, we're at the top of a mountain range. And I never knew that, that Jerusalem sits that high up. And you can feel it, especially in the wintertime. And then the whole, actually, when you come from the Dead Sea, you're climbing 4,000 feet because you're 1,400 feet below sea level. You're coming up to a 4,000-foot crest. You come the other way, if you're coming from like Ashdod or over on the coast, you're coming up 2,500 feet. This is why he says, oh, mountains of Israel. It, the whole country is full of mountains. There's valleys everywhere. And then in the Kidron Valley, for example, which runs right, right beside the, the, the uh, east wall of Jerusalem, that little valley is just a valley on top of a mountain. You ever been up on the Blue Ridge and you can actually see little valleys on top of the Blue Ridge? They're not the big valleys down in the basin where you have cities like Charlottesville, but you have little valleys on top of the mountains, and that's what's around Jerusalem. You have these little valleys that are actually high up. Because when David originally uh, laid the foundations of Jerusalem, when he took the city from the Jebusites, David took a strong mountaintop hill, that which would be like a citadel, if you will, for safety and protection. The ancient heights is what the Scripture is talking about. That's the ancient heights. It goes all the way back to the Canaanites actually took the ancient heights, and then God gave the ancient heights to Israel, and then that ancient height became the city of David. 
right? And then Solomon builds the temple there on the Temple Mount, which is just north of where David's palace would be and just north of the lower part of Jerusalem coming up to the Temple Mount, facing back to the Mount of Olives. Come Wednesday night, you see the pictures. These things will be really, really clear. And uh, this, is what, this is what the Lord is saying. He's speaking to the mountains. He's speaking to Mount Carmel. He's speaking to Mount Arbel, where we did a worship service looking over the Sea of Galilee. All of these, all the way up to Mount Hermon, which is snow-capped, 7,000 feet uh, above sea level. And I will show you that as well. He speaks to the heights here. He speaks to the rivers and the valleys. In verse 4, say, thus says the Lord, say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers. There's many hills. There's many mountains. They're very tall mountains uh, relative to the landscape. They're not tall compared to like the Himalayas, but they are tall compared to the landscape there. And there's all these rivers and valleys. Um, rivers are so important, right? Rivers supply us with fresh water. Rivers are what we use to fertilize fields and into water fields. And the, the nation of Israel has one main river, and you know it well, right? The Jordan. It's fed by three springs. It's fed by the Hasbani. It's fed by the Banias Springs, the Banias Springs, and the Dan River, which actually some of the source of that water comes out of Syria, flows into the Dan River. And then those three springs feed the Jordan River. And then they flow into the Sea of Galilee, which is their fresh water supply, which is very unique among the Arab nations. They have this huge reservoir of fresh water that God has given them. You know the Sea of Galilee? I didn't know this until I got there. I could have known this, should have known this. It's shaped like two things. It's shaped like a harp. And it's shaped like a heart. The Sea of Galilee. It's shaped like a heart. It's the, it's the fresh water supply. It's in a valley. It, uh, it sits 600 feet below sea level. The Sea of Galilee, which is not as low as the Dead Sea. Uh, over there, by the way, they refer to the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea as the Red, Med, and the Dead. So uh, that's how you remember. Those are the three saltwater bodies, the red, the med, and the dead. And you also have the freshwater supply, which is the Sea of Galilee. And of course, they desalinate and they use all these, even they even use the saltwater supply for desalinization, fertilization. But you've got these rivers. So God's saying, speak to the rivers. They're smaller rivers that feed into uh, the Jordan rivers. God says, speak to these things. These unique things where all the nations around them are dirt, and desert, for the most part. And then Israel has these life-giving waters that keep springing deep within mountain rock. They are coming from deep within mountain rock. They're like aquifers coming from the mountains of Syria, even Jordan. God sneaks the water under those countries to Israel. Amazing, huh? The snow's up there, but comes under into the Jordan and into the Sea of Galilee. It says, speak to, in verse 4, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes and the cities that have become forsaken. Now, prior to 1948, almost all of Israel was forsaken. You realize this, right? If you went to Israel prior to 1948, most of the country was either one of three things, desert, craggy rock, or swamp. How many would you like to live in either one of those three options? Desert? craggy rock mountaintops and outcrops, or swamp. That was it. Uh, very lightly inhabited. Most of Israel was just inhabited by Bedouins. You know, that, uh, you know goats can eat anything, so don't use a goat as proof that you could live there. Because a goat, I don't know what they find, but they'll eat just about anything. You'll see even the wild goats still down in the, when you're down in the, uh, the desert, Judean desert, all the way down in the Negev. But the desolate waste and the ruins. Now, this is not like it was the days of Jesus because there was flourishing cities, there was forest, and then even when Jesus' time in the Roman time was nowhere near as lush as it was when Joshua got there. Right? Nowhere near as lush. By the way, speaking of Joshua, another kind of little thing that you notice, speaking of the mountains and the lushness that it was before it became desolate and was desolate in 1948, uh, I didn't know, you know, when Moses goes and stands on the top of Mount Nebo, which was in Moab, which is today the middle part of Jordan, it would have been Moab, and the lower part of Jordan would have been Edom. 
And uh, they actually call it goal, G-O, um, or game, G-A-M-E. Top is Gilead, Ammon, Moab, Edom, game, is on the right side of the Jordan. But when Moses stands there on Mount Nebo, I didn't know until I looked, and I was there, and I was looking at a map, and it never dawned on me. God tells Moses to look out at the promised land. Guess what city he's looking directly at? Jerusalem. On a clear day, Mount Nebo and Jerusalem look face to face at each other. So Moses is standing on Mount Nebo looking straight across at Jerusalem, but Jerusalem's not Jerusalem at that point. It's just beautiful. It's just green. It's just lush. And later it becomes desolate, ruins, wasted, cities falling down, earthquakes, wars, famine destroyed Israel. You hear that? Earthquakes, wars, and famines. What's coming at the end time for the whole world? Earthquakes, wars, famines. And yet Israel's blooming right now. The waste places, the swamps. You know what Israel started to do it after 1948? Again, our tour guide, because he's not Christian, he was Jewish, he's fascinated, he's a very knowledgeable guy about architecture, archaeology, uh, you name it, uh, horticulture. Uh, he's done it all in his 40 years in Israel. But uh, what Israel, uh, what the immigrants that would come to Israel from Russia and those that escaped uh, the Holocaust and came down out of after World War II, what they began to do with the land, they began to take the swamps and drain the swamps off. And when they drain the swamps off, you actually have a lot of rich soil underneath there. It's dark black. And then they begin to mix that with the clay soil. And they begin to take the Dead Sea, which, by the way, the Dead Sea, nothing lives in it, but it makes tremendous fertilizer. It's called potash, which is used in, in actually fertilizing the field. They use the natural, uh, natural waters of the, of the Galilee, uh, Sea of Galilee, and they begin to irrigate the nation. And so swamps became fertile valleys. They began planting. There was... At one point, they planted over a million trees, and so forests begin to come back. But none of this works unless, guess who what's blessing? Unless God is blessing. You, farmers can't be good farmers just by doing the right stuff. They still have to have the blessing of God. The springs have to come forth. Even what they plant, God has to bless it, and these things started to take place, these waste places. You know, Psalm 85.11 tells us this. I don't know if you are familiar with this verse. Psalm 85 tells 85.11 tells us truth will spring forth from the earth. Isn't that amazing? Truth will spring forth from the earth. And what is taking place today in Israel is as they uncover city after city after city, some of the cities are buried 40, 50, 100 feet beneath the earth, didn't even know they were still there. And when they uncover them, more truth is revealed. A seal of David, something about the kingdom, something about a priest, something about a scribe, something that's found in Scripture, and they're finding it month after month. The truth is springing from the ground. It's just, you're not hearing about it because American media doesn't care about this. Most church people don't care about this, right? But truth is springing from the ground, and it's springing from the ground both archaeologically, what they're finding in archaeological digs, meticulous archaeological digs, I mean, we were walking on the streets of Roman cities in Scalop. I'm going to say that wrong, so let me get that. Bet Shen is the way I know how to say it today, which is the Hebrew word. Bet Shen. Uh, Scythopolis is what they call it. I think it was Scythopolis was the Roman or Greek name. It was founded by Alexander the Great. We're walking through that ancient city, which, guess what? God destroyed it with an earthquake. It was a pagan city built originally by Alexander the Great. Then it was flourishing under the Roman Empire. It was expanded. They had it all there. They had the brothels. They had the bathhouses. They had the gladiator fights, people killed by wild animals for fun, for sport, the chariot racing. They had it all right at the time of Jesus. It was part of the Decapolis, the ten-city uh, area where the Man of Gadara was one of the cities on the northern side, uh, on the, would be the east side of the Sea of Galilee. But all of that area was flourishing under the mighty Roman Empire at that time, but it was buried. Almost the entire city was buried, and now it's unearthed at about 40 feet. You can actually see where they've dug it out, and you can walk the streets and see how God rocked that city with an earthquake, sending it to its ruin, and again, all of Israel at some point. But these ruins are now speaking, aren't they? They're speaking to us today. 
and they're mirroring what the Lord has spoken to the prophets, such as Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, and others. These uh, cities that are being rebuilt, um, it's amazing to see the cities with the same names. Obviously, Jerusalem still bears the same name as it did in the time of Christ, but many other cities are coming alive all throughout Israel to actually see Nazareth and Tiberias and Shechem and these cities that are Jericho. They actually are alive and growing, and it's weird to see these same cities today with high-rise buildings, highways coming in, cell phone coverage everywhere, even McDonald's that are kosher, which are there. Uh, I didn't eat at a McDonald's, but I think it would be pretty cool because unlike our McDonald's, we know that the beef is good and it's kosher there and it has to be from local Israeli beef. We're not always sure if it's beef here, you know? Especially in England, they're not sure if they're getting horse meat right now. So, but um, you see these cities just coming alive. Jerusalem's growing like unbelievable. When you come Wednesday, I'll show you the growth of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's bigger now than it's ever been. Jerusalem's never been this big. Jerusalem is a world-class city and just continues to expand and grow. And you're like, when will it stop? Well, things are coming, but it's growing tremendously. The people are invigorated in many sense of uh, really expanding and growing. You look at Tel Aviv, it's like uh, suburban Los Angeles. Just growing tremendously across and then there's also the, the uh, ancient cities that are being found that, again, just are being excavated now for the first time. Some will be found this year. Some will be found next year. It just continues to uh, you know, really be an unveiling. Um, one thing that was amazing is speaking of the ruins. You've all heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? They were found in the caves of Qumran which is parallel to the Rift Valley and the Dead Sea. The Rift Valley is why it's so, it's where the two continental plates, and that's why they, you have the, uh, the depression there below sea level, and the Jordan River runs down through the Galilee, down into uh, the Dead Sea. But the caves of Qumran, they face what is modern-day Jordan, and in those caves, you have in 1947, a little shepherd, Bedouin boy, throws a rock trying to get the goats out, and he hits what he sounds, it sounds different to him, goes in and finds the part. It wasn't the Dead Sea Scrolls were actually in several caves, but that was the first of what was found. But the one book, this is amazing, Israel is not a nation in 47, it becomes a nation in 48. The Dead Sea Scrolls are found in 47. Guess, guess what's the only book fully intact found in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls? The book of Isaiah. For unto you a son is born, a child is given, and his name will be called El Gibor, or Mighty God. Right? A virgin shall conceive, chapter 7. He who will be led as a lamb to slaughter, chapter 53. Folks, I'm going to tell you, the Jewish folks in Israel don't know any of those verses. Their rabbis keep them far away. But the one book, fully intact in 47, the nation becomes established in 48, the book of Isaiah, all about Jesus, all about the renewal of Israel. Then, it gets better, 65, they find on Masada, remember the fortress, they, they, they ended up committing suicide so the Romans wouldn't take them. It was like a three-year siege of this. We stood on Masada, it's unbelievable. And when you stand on Masada and three Israeli fighter jets go whizzing by you at sonic speed, it's even more powerful, which happened to us. And you're like, what's going on? You know, <laughs> it's a, um, so that uh, we're standing up there and they find more scrolls at Masada. And guess what they find at Masada? Ezekiel. That's in 65, Jerusalem, the old city comes back, is taken in the Six-Day War, back from Jordan in 67. God's like, here, you're going to need this in a year. Here, you're going to need this in two years. Listen, listen, listen. So the, the, the desolate places are speaking. The cities are speaking. What about the fields and the, and the landscape? Look at verse 8. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches, and you shall yield fruit to my people that they are about to come. Unbelievable. You cannot describe to anybody the flourishing of the land unless you drive it. I know a couple of you have been to Israel. I've talked to a few of you that have been. When you drive throughout the land, and we went all over, 
we didn't go through the Negev, which is the desert part on the bottom, but we went just about everywhere else except for the upper uh, corner uh, closer to Lebanon on the Far East Coast, which is up towards Haifa. We didn't go there. But everywhere else, we kind of went a lot of different places. And Israel, another uniqueness, and I'll show some of this on Wednesday, Israel has not one, not two, not four, not five, not ten, 17 climate zones. 17 distinct climate zones in the size of New Jersey. Because of that, you go everywhere. Almond trees. As far as you can see, growing palm trees. Apricots, plums, oranges, lemons, limes, bananas, which are not native to the land, grow great there. They use canopies of them. They look like a mosquito net. They use drip irrigation. They use one-fourth of the water that our farmers use and grow more fruit, vegetables per capita. 95% of the food they eat there comes from right there. All blooming like unbelievable. As far as you can see, farms of every kind, every kind of fruit, every kind of vegetable. The seven native fruits of the land, the people there are quite, I found the Jewish people that are from Israel are quite proud of the seven native fruits. And that is when they came into the land in Canaan, Remember, God gave the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The set of native, uh, let me see if I can remember them, wheat and barley, figs, dates, olives, um, what's the, uh, pomegranates, pomegranates, and there's one more is, uh, my last one, I said olives, grapes, dates, figs, pomegranates, Wheat, barley. I don't know if I got seven, but anyway, we're close enough. But it's really, really, that's the native, that's the native, native seven fruits of the land. Isn't it cool that it's seven? God's number? Seven? But then everything else that is subtropic all the way up to what we would grow in like Michigan, like apples, all grows there equally well in the different climate zones. They plant those different things. Unbelievable what's taking place in the land. What about the people? The people. God's all about the people. He speaks to the land to prep you for the people. Because what God is doing in Israel is he first is fulfilling prophecy in the land that the people would open their eyes and see it. You follow me? Why God is doing what he's doing with the land, he's like, open your eyes and see. Have I not? Go read Ezekiel 36. Did I not say that I would cause the fruit to bloom? Did I not say that the rivers and the desolate places would be rebuilt? And it's not for your doing or even for your sake, but for my sake, saith the Lord. But there's a multiplication happening among the people as well. Uh, Israel's now at about 8 million people. By 2025, they should be at 10 million. I wouldn't be surprised if they actually get there faster than that. That's the current rate. Uh, their growth rate is outpacing the world's total growth rate as far as uh, population growth in Israel. It's amazing, though, there's still only a eight, eight and a half million people there. You know, there's more than that in New York City, folks, right? And yet, it's growing tremendously. In 2012 alone, they had 160,000 births and 20,000 new immigrants. 75% um, of the nation is Jewish. And of that 75%, that makes six, they just this is year, this, just this year, they crossed the line of six million Jews now live in Israel. Why is that significant? Six million died in the Holocaust. That's a big deal to the Jewish people that I talk to over there, a really big deal. We, our last stop, my wife and I and Russ and a handful of others, uh, had it ourselves to not leave until we went through the Holocaust Museum and we did go through the Holocaust Museum. Uh, you can't go even through the last piece of it, which is an eternal flame, which has Treblinka, Auschwitz, uh, all the different uh, concentration camps, death camps. Uh, if you're a man, you must put on a yarmulke. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not. You can't come in unless you do. And, uh, and that's significant because the six million that died now have been fully replaced in the land, the land, with six million Jewish people today, last year alone, 160,000 Jewish, uh, or 160,000 born, I'm not sure if those were all Jewish because you also had to have Arab 
uh, Arab babies in that list too. But 20,000 immigrants, and those are most always, 99% of the time, the immigrants are Jewish, coming from places like Russia, Ethiopia, some from the United States, some from South America. The gentleman behind me who was on pilgrimage, she's probably 70-some years old, going to the Western Wall. We call it the Wailing Wall. They don't call it the Wailing Wall. They call it the Western Wall. We'll talk about that on Wednesday. I'll show you why that is. Uh, but uh, they, the guy behind me, he was coming from Brazil to come and just pray at the Western Wall, which is not uncommon, pilgrimage from uh, Jewish people around the world. Uh, 20% of Israel is Arab. And again, I, I found, in, in, a, in a larger sense, sometimes I had the sense that there was more Arab than Jew there, and the reason is that they are so prominent with putting mosques everywhere there's a village, and more than one sometimes, right? So you would ride, you're riding down a main highway, and when you see an Arab village, minaret, and if it's dark, you see the green uh, glow of the minaret because the, the, uh, the Muslim flag is green, so they burn a green flame, or it's not really a green flame, it's just these big green halogen lights that are up, up in the top of the minaret, which is that it's a tall-looking little tower with the little point you're probably used to seeing, then you have the mosque, but the Arab villages, to me, sometimes seem more prominent, but that's because they so, uh, again, Islam is all about huge markers, if you will, whereas the Jewish communities, they don't have any of that. You just kind of ride, and you, if you don't see a minaret, you know you're looking at a Jewish community. And, but the people are growing, uh, you know, the, Arabs, the Arab population is growing at the same time. That even though they're 20%, their communities are also growing. Uh, and for the most part, they live in pretty good harmony today. Don't, don't be misunderstood. Uh, most of the Arabs and the, and the Jewish people work at the same places. They just won't intermarry. That's the, 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 no, there's no intermarrying there. Um, one thing that's really interesting there is today, 73% or 4.3 million of the Jewish people that are there today, 73% of them, they're called Sabras, S-A-B-R-A-S. That means they were born in Israel. 73% of Jewish people there now are actually born there. Uh, the three people that we had dinner with the final night that actually owned the company that gave us the tour, um, two of the three were born there, and the one had moved there when he was six months old. And he had to explain that, too, because the other two would actually knock him on the head if he said he was born there, because uh, he got there when he was six months old. Uh, but... Um, and interestingly enough, and none of them were Christians, Russ had a chance to witness to one of them over dinner, uh, was sharing the scriptures with him. And he's like, wow, that's in there? We had a number of those experiences. But uh, they said, which was you know, one of these things you'll hear, but they don't look at it the same way we do that know Christ. They said, Israel is a miracle. That's what they said. And they believe that. But they don't know where they mean it from. They'll just believe it. Israel is a miracle, but they're not sure where the miracle comes from because some are secular and don't even really believe much in God. Some believe in God, but only go to synagogue a couple of times a year. And it's kind of an all-over-the-map thing, but they do believe the country's a miracle, but they also believe it's a miracle because of their hard work and the ingenuity and all the scientists that came from Russia and Germany and all the different things that they've come up with, and they also believe those things are miracles, and they are, but only God blesses those things. Amen. One thing that's fascinating there, uh, by the way, it was 35% were Israeli born in 1948. It's gone up to 73%. So you can see the flourishing of people actually growing and expanding in the land. But uh, one of the things that's fascinating, if you're in America where race means so much in this country, I wish it didn't, but it still does, unfortunately. Israel is refreshing in that sense. Race is irrelevant in Israel, and I asked other Jewish people if I was correct in my assumption and my perception. They said, you're absolutely correct. Ethiopian Jews, Greek or Italian-looking Jews, which is the majority, European or Irish-looking German Jews like me, if I was Jewish, right? No distinction whatsoever over there. You're either Jewish or you're not, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's pretty much what it comes down to. If you're not, maybe you're Armenian Christian. I'm not saying born-again Christian. Around the, around the world, there is a problem with people understanding what's born-again and what's crusader, right? The crusaders were not born-again Christians. 
They were mercenaries for the most part, sent by papal dynasties, if you will. Had nothing to do with actually born again. But in Israel, you're either Jewish or you're Gentile. And if you're Gentile, you're mostly Arab Muslim, primarily. And then they have the Druze, D-R-U-Z-E, beautiful little villages. They were very friendly people. They make great Middle Eastern Mediterranean food like falafel. Hummus is like salsa there. It's everywhere. I love it. If you like hummus, you're going to love it there. Uh, you know, but the, the Druze people, they actually have kind of combined, if you will, Islam and Christianity and made their own religion. And they're not accepted by the Muslims at all. But the Jewish people and them get along quite well. And, uh, but, but racism doesn't exist. If you're going to be hated there, you're hated because of your faith or your ethnicity, not the color of your skin. Color your skin is irrelevant in Israel. Well, that was a real refreshing thing. That uh, really the Ethiopian Jews, the Middle Eastern Jews, the European Jews all consider themselves brothers and sisters under the Jewish household. And everyone else, Arabs are the same way. The Arabs don't look at race either. It's, it's only in our land that this becomes such a hypersensitive thing, but it's certainly not there. Uh, though you wouldn't want to also have people hating you for your faith, which is a problem there. <laughs> so that it's not, it never, this, this is one thing about mankind. We'll always find a reason to hate one another. That's, that's, that is a common bond. We may just do it on different grounds, uh, but the people uh, are growing and multiplying. But I want to close on the renewal. Because even though the land is, even though the land is multiplying, even though the land is flourishing, even though it's stunning to see what's taking place in science and technology, big tech company. Like I said, it, other than Silicon Valley, more high-tech patents are happening in Israel than anywhere in the world. Cell phone coverage is fantastic over there. I mean, everyone, I mean, uh, hooked in, dialed in, Wi-Fi everywhere, but yet farms flourishing, people growing, pretty good harmony across the board. You know, there's definitely the problems in the Gaza Strip at times. There's some flare-ups there, but for the most part, um, it's the calm before the storm. It really is. Uh, Israelis feel pretty good about where they're headed, although they have some deep-seated worries, as I found out as well. And in, in, in when you could have a longer conversation, then things in the depths of the soul begin to kind of seep to the top that wouldn't kind of show up. Uh, but for the most part... Um, that is flourishing on the surface. But what does God say about renewal? Well, verse 21 in chapter 36, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my sake, which you have profaned the nations, I profaned my name, among the nations, wherever you went, verse 23, and I will sanctify my great name. The, the end of 23rd verse, look what it says. When, when will God sanctify his name there? Look at the end of verse 23. When I am hallowed before their eyes. Folks, this is, what's, this is the missing piece. God is not hallowed in Israel yet. Oh, we spent one night... We were there on Shabbat, or the Sabbath, which runs from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. We were at the Hotel Kinar, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. It is a popular place for Orthodox Jews. It was quite funny. Russ can attest to this, my wife. We were the only, not only the non-Jews non that night, right, Russ? We were the only non-Orthodox we stuck out like a sore thumb that night. Everyone was in black. The hats, whether, and the hats signify what part of Orthodox Jewish you come from, whether it was Romania, whether it was Poland, whether it was Germany, whether it was Sephardic, whether it was, you know, um, what's the other one? But anyway, all these, different, uh, all these different groups of Orthodox. And what's funny is you don't really know this, and you're sitting on the outside, they don't really get along great. There's more divisiveness inside the sex than sometimes among. So Arab versus Jew get along more readily normal there than sometimes Orthodox with Orthodox. I had one Jewish man tell me this. He said, if you have two Jews, you have three opinions. 
that was not me speaking. That was a Jewish man said that to me. And I came to see that that is true within the Orthodox, within the conservative, within the secular. There's a lot of division there, strife, if you will. But, but it's, it's under the surface. You wouldn't see it on the level because everyone's having the same dinner. But, there, but I noticed after I understood that, yes, these hats are over here, these hats are over here, these people. But yet they all look the same from a distance, but then when you get closer, they're not. But yet they're all the Orthodox. But the one thing is they all looked at us with disdain. Because there were the American Gentiles, they're the night of their Shabbat dinner, which they will not do any work, wearing jeans, they're dressed up, you know, all this kind of stuff. But it was really cool, but, but even though they read these prayer books, they don't know what the Word of God actually says. The rabbi gives them these few little psalms, they read these psalms, they read these prayers, and then they say, well, where's the spirit of it all? Where's the Holy Spirit? Where is redemption? Where is forgiveness? Not to be found. None of that's there. None of that's in the prayer books. Look at verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Do you realize that everything that's not what Jesus Christ has given us is idolatry? It doesn't matter if you actually have part of the Bible in it. Still idolatry. He goes on, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Take out the heart of stone of your flesh, and I will give you a heart. Uh, I'll take out the heart of stone and give you the heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. This is what the Lord wants to do. Turn over with me real quick to Hosea chapter 8, real quickly. It just take a right-hand turn, go a few chapters to Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8. Jesus, in Matthew, I won't make you turn there, but in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and he said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you. But you were not willing. You will not see me again, Jerusalem, until you say, Baruch Hashem Adonai, which is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which comes from Psalm 122.6. Now understand what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is saying to the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, you will not see me again, though you don't even see me now. You will not see me a second time until you can say that I am the blessed one who comes in the name of God, Jehovah. Until you say that, remember Jesus said to the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They crucified him for that concept, didn't they? Not just they, we crucified. Remember, Jesus was crucified by Pilate and Herod. Right? Jewish leaders and Gentiles. We all crucified the Lord. But those of us who have come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we've done so because we believe that He's not only our Savior, but we believe He's mighty God. As Isaiah chapter 9 tells us, the Holy, He is the Holy One of God, and He comes in the name of the Father, but He's equal to the Father. Right? So Jesus said, Jerusalem, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that you know that I and the Father are one. And that's not what Judaism teaches. They're still looking for the Messiah. He's already come. Well, look at Hosea chapter 8, verse 12. Look at verse 12. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. When you actually speak truth... To someone who doesn't know it, it's a strange thing. It's a strange thing. I want to close with a... Um, look at verse 14 first. For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah has also multiplied its uh, fortified cities. But I will send fire upon the cities. God's already done this in the past. They built temples and synagogues, but not they wouldn't receive God's very only begotten Son even though the temples and synagogues were still adhering to the law, the Sabbath, Shabbat, the feast, Yom Kippur, Hanukkah, right? 
Hearing to those things, but not adhering to the one who is at the center of it all, and that's the very Son of God. The revelation. Moses said, there will arise one like unto myself. The, the great prophet, Jesus himself. And then if you look at the end of Hosea, the end of Hosea, last chapter, chapter 14, look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 and 5. And six. <laughs> Let's look at verse, uh, verse four. Starting with verse four, I will hear their, heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. I have a great picture of that, by the way, on Wednesday. The dew of Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Then those who dwell under his shadow shall return. The heart of stone will be pulled out. The heart of flesh will be placed in. Israel will worship the Lord Jesus Christ. They will look upon him who they've pierced, the scriptures tell them. This is not yet happening, but I want to close with a story that was most, the most amazing thing I had happen when I was there. Russell shared some things that were quite amazing on Wednesday as well. Um, we read the morning we were in Jerusalem, Lord just I just had this impression, honey, let's go up and read Ezekiel 36, the entire chapter, every verse, over the city and pray for the whole city and the whole nation, which we did. We stayed up there. It was unbelievable. It was a beautiful sky. Not, it was one of those 5% humidity days. The city is beautiful. Now, Jerusalem is all made of Jerusalem stone, which is this beautiful limestone color that is between white and beige. And when the sun hits it at a certain, it just glows with a golden hue. And it's why it's called the Golden City, which I did not know. Matter of fact, you can't even build buildings. You must use Jerusalem stone, uh, city code. So the whole city looks this way. It's all the same stone as far as you can see. And when the city hits later in the day, early in the morning, golden. Beautiful. With the trees in the background, everything. So we're praying over the city, and that was in the morning. And then we headed out, and later that day in the afternoon, that was in the morning that we read the chapter and prayer of the city, uh, we were given a short time, one hour, to go shopping in either the Arab quarter or the Jewish quarter or the Armenian quarter, and I can't remember the other one, but uh, they're all in this little area. There's a big fountain, and then the communities are segmented, Arab side, Armenian side, Jewish side, and they, and they border each other. Well, we were right on the border of the Arab quarter here and the Jewish quarter right here, and we walked into this art gallery, and uh, we were looking at art and ended up talking for a few minutes. Uh, the paintings were stunning, but he had these one group of paintings that were done on the Jerusalem stone. And he starts telling me in his beautiful Israeli accent how he's the only one that paints on Jerusalem stone. And I, it was really pretty stuff, and so we were looking at it, and uh, we couldn't make up our mind, and we see, oh, I like this one, and then we're looking at all these, looking at all these different things, which one, we, we want to bring one home that would have a special meaning, and we actually finally picked one where the temple faces east, so Jesus is going to walk through the east gate, I'll cover this on Wednesday night, you're not going to want to miss it, it's really cool, there's a prophecy right now in place that I did not know, it's right now holding steady, and Jesus is going to blow it wide open, I'll show it to you Wednesday night, but when we're sitting here talking to him, we, uh, we just, one thing leads to another, and we're commenting and, on the different paintings, and all of them you know, have some historic context. And for us, they don't only have historic context, they have spiritual context. Uh, but we get to talking, and we finally settle on one. We sit down. He's going to write out the bill at his desk. He's got a little desk there in the back. His name is Benjamin. I won't give his last name. But we get to talking about why we're there, and I told him a little about why we're in Israel, and uh, he starts asking me some questions, and I say, well, uh, I actually am a pastor. I'm here with a group of pastors to see the land and to really just what God would show us. And uh, I said, not, not less than six months ago, I gave up a business career to follow the Lord as a pastor. And he goes, really? That really, that, that he, want, he leaned in on that, like, why would you do such a thing kind of thing? Uh, you know, asking me questions about that. And, uh, and the longer we went, uh, I started asking him questions. I said, right, 
Benjamin, let me ask you some questions. Sorry, sorry, ask. I said, do you, are you familiar with, I, I see you see the temple and these things. Are you familiar with what the Word of God says about these things? No, no, no. It, it, it ended up talking about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. His name was Benjamin. I said, not only the other, let me tell you, have you heard about the Apostle Paul? No. Now you would think that everyone's heard of the Apostle Paul. He, when I said, how about St. Paul? Yeah, I've heard that name. Yeah, St. Paul. But never heard the term the Apostle Paul. I said, have you ever heard about his life? Mm-mm. Can I tell you? Yes, please, go ahead. Start telling me about his life. He leans in. I said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. His name originally wasn't Paul. It was Saul, your first king, King Saul. Then he becomes Paul. But why does he become Paul? Well, you know, Benjamin, because now I get to talk to him about his city. I said, you know if you exit what gate? The Damascus Gate, which is on the north side. You exit the Damascus Gate, you head straight towards Damascus. Paul was heading to Damascus. Why? Why? (laughs) He's asked me why. He's fascinated by the story. I tell him he's headed to Damascus to capture and imprison people like me that had put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they were Jewish like you. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I talk, he's going to go up there, but he doesn't make it all the way to Damascus because Jesus blinds him with the light. This testimony is told three times in the book of Acts. That's why it's a powerful one to tell, especially to a Jewish person. And I'm sitting here, and God had prepared his heart. I knew I was supposed to go, but I didn't know why. Now it was coming to me. And the Lord is just opening his eyes, and I see, look, this is what happened. He's blinded. He can't see it all now. And guess who speaks to him, Benjamin? This is Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And we go to Isaiah 53. We go to Isaiah 7. We go to Isaiah 9. He's asking me, he goes, how do you know these passages? (laughs) Because you're not like other Christians I met. I said, tell me what you mean by that. He goes, well, I meet Roman Catholics, and they don't care about any of this stuff. He said that, not me. But I have to agree with him. For the most part, that's exactly true. He said, I've met other pastors. You're not like other pastors. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, don't talk to me about these things. See, God is actually working. Now, when it all left, I left him with a thick track called The Second Greatest Lie Ever Told. Some of you have the Mark K. Hill track. I wrote, passed it in the back, wrote my email address. He didn't get saved that day, but God was working big time. We spent the full hour there. We never went shopping. And he kind of apologized, said, don't apologize, this is the best thing I could have ever done here. This is what it's all about. We've got other stories like that on Wednesday that are similar. God opened up the portals of heaven and opened up opportunities. Like I said, it wasn't a mission trip, but we actually got to share Christ in a number of ways. Russ has some amazing stories as well. And uh, my wife was there with me the whole time. I think what it came down to, folks, was this. It wasn't just the scriptures I told him. He could see genuinely we loved him. That's what it came down to. He could see it. He could sense that the Holy Spirit was working. And God wants to do an amazing work of renewal in Israel and here. Because I'm called to be a pastor in the United States. I'm not called to head to Israel, though I liked it there a lot. But I'm called to be here. But God wants to do a work of renewal. And I want to close with a very interesting paradox that I see in this passage versus what's taking place with with our lives and our testimony. In Israel, the land is already blooming. The technology is already blooming. The cities are bustling and blooming. Jerusalem's bigger than it's ever been. The country is actually thriving in the midst of everything. They're thriving in an unbelievable way. Uh, but I liken it to this. You and I, we got saved. We, most of us got saved when we weren't thriving, Right? I got saved. We were like $80,000 in debt, upside down in our car loans. Our life was a mess. We had made all the wrong decisions. Everything was really upside down when we got saved. And God then, after saving, he renewed my heart first and then began to renew the other things in my life. But Israel, it's the complete opposite. God has actually built this beautiful house, and it's gorgeous, and it's blooming, and yet there's no electricity or plumbing in it. That's the picture I got when I was there. The electricity and plumbing is missing because the spirit isn't there yet. But the Benjamins 
and the Josiahs, which we can talk about Wednesdays, and the Davids that we can talk about, Russ, on Wednesday, those are the ones that God is speaking to where he'll reverse it. Ezekiel 36. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your desire, Lord, to bring renewal to every person, whether they be of the household of Israel, whether they be Gentile, Lord, you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Lord, you do all of these things not for us, but for your great namesake. And because you just love us by your own choice and your own desire. And Lord, we know that you, Lord, are doing these things that you would open up the eyes of those that are blind. Lord, you even said through your son, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And before we close this service today, I just want to ask it. Maybe you're visiting. Is there, if there's anyone here that doesn't know the Lord as your Savior, just raise your hand right where you're at. Say, I, I, I don't know Jesus. I've never been renewed. I've never had the heart of stone removed and replaced with the heart of flesh. If that's you, just raise your hand right where you're at. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. I assume most of you do, but I don't know that for certain. Anyone at all? I would ask you, though, this. Those of us that are believers, our focus this year as a church is to be joyful. we got a lot of reason to be joyful, don't we? We have a risen Savior. We know the whole story. Yeah, God's teaching us every day things we didn't know, but that's the finer details. We know the story. Remember, there's the land. We know the story, the greatest story that God sent His Son into the world to save sinners like you and me. We know how that story goes, and we've received it and believed upon it. That's reason for joy, amen? But if you're a believer, and I'll assume that you are, why not let God have all of your life so you would actually see the renewal of not just your soul, but all the other things that are around you, that you would begin to see the desolate places in the rest of your life refreshed. And maybe you would touch other people. Remember, the Jordan River just doesn't touch itself. It touches the land around it. So I know, for me, I don't want to just have the revive of my spirit in the inside, but that my life would touch other people positively for the Lord. Amen? That's what he wants. And if you're walking around depressed and you, you, you don't have any joy, yeah, it's time to just give your life over to Jesus completely, lock, stock, and barrel. Amen? That is the source of peace. Peace like a river, right? That's where that peace comes from, is giving it all over to Jesus. And then it's not that life becomes easy or perfect, but you actually have joy in the midst of trials. You have to have the Holy Spirit, and you're able to walk through the desert places as Jesus did and still come out of it and do great things for the Lord. Amen? What he did after 40 days in the wilderness. Why don't we stand and close in song together?